Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs will ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the 435th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Jamie Tahari, professor of anthropology at Durham University, who's going to talk to us about the true age of fairy tales. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Sapsapital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. To begin with, welcome to the show, Jamie. Hello there. Thanks for having me on. We're very excited. Jamie is uh, all the way in the United Kingdom, so um, we were just wondering if you were missing afternoon tea at this point. Oh, no, that's not for at least another hour. Oh, okay. So we're safe. We're good. <laughs> Excellent. <Yeah. laughs> I might start getting a bit grouchy towards the end, but um, oh. yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to hold off. Okay, and, and we'll be sympathetic if, if you start to get grouchy. <laughs> um, so the first segment of our show is called Farouk Dinarin. And our goal is to give our listeners just a little background on the subject. So I figured I'd start with as basic a question as I could imagine, which is, what actually constitutes a fairy tale? Well, that, that's actually a very interesting question, and, and maybe not quite as simple a one as you, as you might have imagined, because there isn't really a um, very compelling or a singular definition of what a fairy tale is. Perhaps... Um, the one thing we can say about fairy tales is that they very rarely feature fairies in them. So it's uh, somewhat ironic that the genre uh, is associated with fairies, but actually when you look at the kinds of stories that we, we you know, consider to be fairy tales, um, you know, fairies pop up from time to time, fairy godmothers in stories like Cinderella, but in many fairy tales, um, there aren't any fairies at all. You think of things like Jack and the Beanstalk or Little Red Riding Hood, you know, some of these real classic stories, they aren't really about fairies at all. What they are about, generally, is ordinary people who uh, face some sort of extraordinary challenge or are put in some extraordinary context, often featuring magical beings or magical objects and um, they're confronted with some kind of, of challenge, uh, some obstacle that they have to overcome, and, and then, you know, they can win great prizes uh, if and when they're successful. So I think it's really that kind of juxtaposition of the ordinary and the extraordinary, the sort of humble farm boy or servant girl who's put in the company of, of a giant or a, you know, or a fairy godmother or some kind of, you know, magical object or great quest of, of some kind. Um, so uh, I think that's the really important characteristic then of fairy tales, is they're really magic tales. And in fact, folklorists often use that term in preference to fairy tales. They'll talk about tales of magic. That's the kind of more, if you like, um, standard um, way of referencing fairy tales in academia. Okay. Um, so what, what interested me uh, when I read your article was the, the idea that fairy tales are much older than we think they are. Um, I think most of us, our, our exposure to fairy tales or tales of magic really is either Hans Christian Andersen or the Brothers Grimm. 
Um, yeah. And we probably have gotten the sanitized versions. Um, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but it is still reasonably difficult in the States here to find the Brothers Grimm, for example, in the originals. Um, they've been yeah. sanitized uh, more than quite a bit. Um, but, but you know, that, that only makes fairy tales a, a couple hundred years old, maybe at the outside. Um, and yeah. uh, your research said that they were much, much older than that. So can you kind of tell us a little bit um, about what you found? And, and I'm particularly interested for this segment about the process that you used to, to maybe argue that fairy tales are much older than we think they are. Yeah, certainly. Um, so you're quite right that most of the fairy tales that we're familiar with today are probably uh, kids' books. Uh, they've, it's become a very, uh, it's become a sort of form of children's literature, really. Um, but before they became children's stories, fairy tales were told in all kinds of different contexts, often actually addressed as much to adult audiences as to children. So when you read things like the Brothers Grimm, what they were interested in doing was collecting the traditional stories of um, rural Germany, the kind of, you know, sort of um, out in the, uh, in, in the countryside. You know, they went and tried to gather all these traditional stories that weren't necessarily aimed at children at all. And I think that's why if you do have the opportunity to read some of those Brothers Grimm tales, you'll probably be quite struck by how uh, gory and, and gruesome and downright unpleasant um, a lot of them are. They're clearly not um, trying to entertain kids. They're not the kind of thing that I would you know, read to my kids just before bedtime, let's put it, put it that way. Um, so, um, so there is a big overlap then between these different genres when we talk about what's a fairy tale, what's a traditional story or, or a folk tale. Certainly, as far as the Brothers Grimm were concerned, these tales of magic, these fairy tales, were um, traditional stories that had been passed down from generation to generation in, uh, in Germany since time immemorial. So they were convinced that uh, fairy tales were, you know, kind of an ancient um, cultural inheritance, and one which they speculated connected the people of uh, Germany to um, other peoples throughout Europe and indeed Asia. So they noted that there were a lot of striking parallels between these traditional stories that, um, that they collected in Germany and stories that you find in Scandinavian countries and England, um, but even further afield, the Slavic countries of Eastern Europe and um, Indo-Iranian peoples in um, um, uh, Western and Southern Asia. So uh, the Brothers Grimm were convinced that a lot of these stories were actually part of an ancient Indo-European inheritance. So the Indo-European language family is a, um, a huge family of languages that kind of includes most of the languages of, of modern Europe, um, as well as a number of languages from the Middle East and um, from Asia, and all these languages are assumed to have a common root. They're all supposed to have descended from what's called Proto-Indo-European, the first um, Indo-European language that gradually diversified into all these distinctive um, um, linguistic lineages, these um, sub-families like the Romance languages of Southern Europe, so Spanish, um, Italian, uh, but also Romanian is another Romance language, 
um, French, um, then you get the Germanic languages, like, of course, German, but Dutch, English is also a Germanic language. Um, the Scandinavian languages are part of that grouping as well. Um, and then you get the Slavic languages, the Indo-Iranian languages. These are all kind of languages that are really quite different from one another in the sense that they're mutually unintelligible, but they're believed to share a, a common root. And what um, the Brothers Grimm believed was that um, we find a similar kind of thing going on with oral traditions, with, with um, these stories that have been passed down. And like these languages, um, the stories have mutated into various locally distinct forms, various local different traditions, but they're all still related to one another. So as far as they were concerned, these stories go way back further than uh, any kind of literary tradition. I mean, indeed, you know, according to the Brothers Grimm, we'd be talking about traditions that are older than the uh, technology of writing itself. So, um, so, you know, really, really old stories. Um, but there are other scholars who have been very sceptical about those claims, who said that, um, you know, a lot of these stories, including ones that the Brothers Grimm collected, actually are literary in origin, probably only a few hundred years old. Um, so um, a good example would be Little Red Riding Hood, which uh, you find in the Brothers Grimm. But, you know, people had argued that Little Red Riding Hood actually um, probably invented by the French writer Charles Perrault, who published it in the late 17th century. And in his telling of it, he, he claims that, oh, this is a story that I heard growing up. Um, but, you know, a lot of literary theorists have argued that, that, that that was just a kind of artifice. It just sort of makes it sound nice. It's a good way of presenting a story as though it's kind of somehow really traditional, really old, but it was actually just something he'd invented himself. And then, you know, it became a really popular story and it finds its way, you know, to, you know, probably fairly remote, you know, places in, you know, the forests or countryside of Germany, then gets collected and presented as though it's some kind of really super traditional old folktale which in fact it's not. So those are the kinds of issues that uh, I and my collaborator, Sarah Grasser de Silva, um, were interested in, in tackling. And um, um, Jamie, we went about it. <coughs> Jamie, yeah. let me interrupt you for a minute because we've kind of hit the back end of, of our first segment. So we're going to give you a chance to continue when we come back. This is ROI. We have lots more to talk about at KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Jamie Tahari, Professor of Anthropology at Durham 
Durham University, and we're talking about the true age of fairy tales. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler, and I'm going to change up just a little bit because I was um, rude to poor Jamie. Yes, you were. <laughs> to poor Jamie and, and cut him off in the middle of a sentence. But uh, you're a professional and you're allowed to do that. Yeah, right. So, so Jamie, <laughs> let's start with you kind of finishing the, uh, the question from the last segment because I think you were about to tell yeah. us how you how you'd figured out ages and whatever. And then Rick I, right. and Terry, I promise you'll get your chance. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I apologize for giving a very long-winded answer to your last question. I'll have to try and be a little bit more um, efficient in my, in my responses. Um, so uh, what, what I have been um, talking about was the uh, controversy about fairy tales and how old they are with, you know, some people including the Brothers Grimm, suggesting they're thousands of years old, hundreds or thousands of years old, and, and other people suggesting that, you know, fair, that they're fairly recent um, literary inventions. So um, my collaborator, uh, Sarah Grasset de Silva, and I wanted to tackle these questions, um, and we, we did it in, I guess, a fairly unusual way, because rather than using conventional um, literary or historical techniques, uh, we actually um, borrowed some methods from evolutionary biology um, because um, we were struck by the similarities and the kinds of problems that, that we were interested in and, and the problems that evolutionary biologists have, have had to contend with, namely this problem of um, missing links, of there being a very incomplete record of the past. So if you're dealing with oral traditions, and folk tales, then almost by definition, you don't have a very complete uh, written record. I mean, that these are tales that have been um, primarily transmitted um, orally. If you believe in the kind of Brothers Grimm hypothesis and these are ancient oral traditions, then you know, if they haven't been written down, then we obviously won't have evidence of their existence until the early modern period when you get the first you know, literary fairy tales being being recorded, written down, and, and published, and, and being becoming hugely um, popular with with you know massive audiences. Um, so, um, in biology, you have a similar kind of problem, right? Where if you're interested in the um, evolution of biological organisms back into deep time then you may get the occasional fossil here or there, but the fossil record is massively patchy. So in general, you've got to find other ways to make inferences about the past. And the way that biologists do that is by using this method known as phylogenetics. And phylogenetics basically involves reconstructing the, um, the tree of life and then the um, characteristics of the different species uh, on the tree of life um, by mapping those on a tree, normally a tree that's derived from DNA, um, and then being and, and basically being able to excavate information about the past that's being preserved through the mechanism of inheritance. So, you know, related species will have common characteristics that they've inherited from common ancestors. So we were interested in seeing whether you could do something similar to that in the case of oral traditions. Um, and what we used instead of a DNA tree of the like the tree of life is based on, uh, we used like the cultural equivalent, which is a language tree. So um, as I've already mentioned, um, Indo-European languages all share a common root, um, diversified into all these different lineages. 
been incredibly well studied in historical linguistics. So we wanted to leverage the insights from historical linguistics into the relationships between these languages and then test whether the um, similarities in different folktales in Europe and, and parts of Asia where you find Indo-European languages being spoken, whether those similarities correlated with the relatedness of the languages. So in other words, um, do um, populations that speak closely related languages have more folktales in common with each other, more shared oral traditions than they do with less closely uh, related um, uh, the populations that speak less closely related languages, because that was exactly what the Brothers Grimm predicted, but hasn't actually ever been formally tested in the way that in the way that we went about doing it. So we use these sort of, you know, quantitative computational methods adapted from biology to try and explore these oral traditions. And that's how we managed to, um, you know, make this uh, cool discovery. But actually, it seems like um, the Brothers Grimm may have been right about at least a proportion of these famous tales of magic, these fairy tales that do actually seem to go really far back in time. Okay, Rick, you've you've waited with uh, with patience and bated breath. Bated breath. <laughs> so, what if I, I was, have a question? I was here. listening to Jamie, and I'm thinking my life has been somewhere between Hans Christian Andersen and Brothers Grimm. Not exactly leaning either way. <laughs> Jamie, I, I have a, a just because uh, I grew up with fairy tales, like um, most children did. Yeah. Is there a is there a, a purpose like a kernel of uh, morality or a behavioral prescriptions or what is the purpose of a, of a fairy tale? Um, well, that's a great a great question um, because it might be that there's no purpose at all to a fairy tale. I mean, we tend to assume that you know that everything has a reason that you know as human beings we do things for reasons why do we invest so much time and energy into constructing these fictional worlds these fantasies um you know there's got to be more to it than entertainment um, but the truth is we don't yet know um whether there is any functional purpose to storytelling or whether it is just something that kind of um entertain us that entertains us or and distracts us maybe taps into um, you know, the way our brains are wired and kind of exploit. So it's a sort of, you know, simulating reality, simulating sort of, you know, fantasies that we would love to happen in real life. But I have to say that um, that's personally not what I believe. I think that stories do often have, and particularly fairy tales and these very stable um, traditions, uh, often actually do have a message in them that they, um, you know, they really do have, value to us, a social value to us, and that's why they are so consistently reproduced generation after generation that, you know, it's not just that we find them memorable and interesting and entertaining, we also, uh, we're motivated to pass them on because we think that they've got important um, messages to convey. And certainly, uh, moral messages are a big part of that. So if you look at the kind of typical um, plot structures of most fairy tales, you know, something that's pretty obvious in them is that um, generally uh, the good guys come out on top. They're the ones that get the rewards and bad behavior, immoral behavior, selfish behavior gets punished. And um, although fairy tale characters don't tend to be very well fleshed out in the way that characters in novels or films do, 
they do offer kind of stereotypes of certain personality traits and um you know and and i think that they um you know by offering those stereotypes of personality traits they offer social evaluations of those personality traits and that's obviously one of the reasons why it is uh, appealing uh, for children and why we like to tell these stories to children and perhaps why they've now evolved into basically a form of children's literature is because they're part of the moral education that we offer to the next generation. Um, and to some extent, I think they have always played that role, even if the audience has been wider than just children in the past. Okay, Terry. Yes, um, Jamie, you're talking about the evolution of some of these fairy tales that have been passed down um, from from a long time ago, um, you say that, um, my question is, like, how, how does our understanding as to which story elements uh, remains the same and which ones change over time, how does that provide a picture of some of the different aspects of the human condition? And I'm particularly thinking about the, the Disney version, Frozen. You know, when that came out, that was kind of revolutionary uh, because it wasn't about romantic love. You know, Elsa... Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you talk about that, please? Thank you. Yeah, um, certainly. So, I mean, I, I think that there are definitely uh, some really interesting dimensions to uh, the way that stories change, not just the way that they stay the same. So I guess that, you know, the, a large emphasis of, of my research has been on the stability of these stories and, um, you know, tracing them back or all, all that way. But the variation that you find in those stories, both across societies and space, but also across time, is clearly something that's really fascinating about folktales. And one of the reasons why we are actually interested in folktales in the first place is because there is no kind of single authoritative version. There isn't an author, there isn't a creator to these stories. They're a kind of, you know, collective product of um, the societies in which they're, they're told. They've got many authors rather than just a single one. And because they have many authors, um, they will adapt to changing tastes and values. And I think gender uh, is a really good example of that. So um, certainly when we look at the uh, literary versions of, of a tale like Little Red Riding Hood, um, and then in more recent kind of cinematic tellings of the tale, uh, it's fascinating to see how Little Red Riding Hood has gone from a rather kind of silly um, kind of, you know, girl in the sort of Brothers Grimm version or the Charles Perrault version who needs, you know, who basically gets herself into trouble because she doesn't listen to her mother, you know, telling her not to wander off the path. She ends up, you know, literally in bed with a predator and... Um, you know, and then in some versions, like the Grimm Brothers version, has to be rescued by some passing man. Um, in the modern versions, we find a much more kind of empowered heroine, you know, a woman who's got the kind of wit and cunning to actually engineer her own escape or to defeat, uh, to defeat the wolf, defeat the predator and, and get away. Um, and interestingly, that represents a kind of return to earlier tellings of Little Red Riding Hood. So in kind of, when we look at Italian and French oral traditions, which are probably the source material for the literary versions of the story, we again find a very different kind of character, a character that's much more empowered 
compared to the character that's portrayed by these male writers like Charles Perrault and, uh, and, and the brothers Grimm. So in early versions of Little Red Riding Hood in oral tradition, she, you know, she does manage to escape from the wolf or even kills, kills the wolf. And so the story is really about a kind of, a kind of awakening, the loss of naivety and, and, and growing up. It's a kind of coming of age story in many of these oral traditions. And I think that does reflect something about the way that gender norms have changed over time. And I think that's, a, you know, gender, I think, is a particularly powerful um, dimension of uh, variation and change in fairy tale traditions. But of course, there are others as well. I mean, we don't like to see, for example, really harsh physical punishment for villains in modern day stories in the way that, that was completely normal at the end. So if you read some of the early versions of Cinderella, it's pretty horrible what ends up happening to the stepsisters. You know, they end up having their kind of toes cut off and having to dance and you know, with their bloody feet. And, and, you know, again, it's just not the kind of, it's not a very appealing kind of uh, message. You know, it's a bit too kind of gory and bloodthirsty. And that's not how, you know, we generally want to see even criminals being punished. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really fascinating thing to look at. Um. Jamie, I'm going to ask a, a very short question here, or what I hope at least is a short question, uh, almost a, an opinion, because one of the things that I that that really struck me as I was reading your article and thinking, and and now you've you know even talking to you, it's more reinforced, um, is the the correlation between something like fairy tales. And I'm thinking of the the genre, most of the the stories in the horror genre. You know, I think of Stephen King. Stephen King repeatedly says yeah. that what he does with his stories is take an ordinary person and put them in a world in which that world has been turned 15 mm. degrees to one side or the other. Um, oh, great. And, and I think that, you know, it sounds like that's exactly what's, what fairy tales are kind of doing. So my, my question, my, my one minute response from you question is, um, do you think that, that that's, uh, true and have things like horror, uh, literature and so forth? Do they, are they sort of the 20th, 21st century version of fairy tales? Yeah, I think absolutely they are. And, and I can return to your very first question when you asked me, what is a fairy tale? And I said, well, one thing about fairy tales, they've hardly ever got fairies in them. But what do they all have? They all have a monster. You could easily call fairy tales monster tales instead. And I absolutely, I mean, I think you're completely right that, um, you know, fairy tales, a big part of their appeal is that... Um, they tap into, you know, kind of fears and um, and and kind of, you know, uh, our imagination about what the worst kind of monsters are. And it's no surprise at all that you see a lot of horror drawing on traditional folkloric uh, concepts and, and material. All right. It is customary that we give the guest on our show the last word. So, Jamie, why do you think knowing about the true age of fairy tales is relevant in today's world? Well, you know, I mean, I think that um, one thing that stories that really stand the test of time, like so many of these stories do, is they can tell us about uh, something about ourselves, not just something about the cultures and societies that we live in, but maybe something deeper than that, something about human nature, what we all have in common, because these are stories that have been so successful, they've actually been able to transcend 
huge differences in language, culture, institutions. So I think that one really good reason for studying stories that have lasted as long as these ones have is that, uh, and I say this as an anthropologist, is that they can teach us a lot about ourselves as well. So it's not just about fantasy. It's, it's, they are very much about reality, or as that kind of you know, expression goes, that uh, you know, they're not real but true. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. Please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 435th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zapital. My name is Jay Swords, and we'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jamie Taheri, professor of anthropology at Durham University, who talked to us about the true age of fairy tales. Our history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on the show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotza Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.